Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 302, Mary Robinette Kowal, Part 2. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen and... Christy Cherish. And it's good that Christy and I are able to connect this week, and we're going to touch on a couple different topics, one of which I know was last week I monologued, since you and I weren't able to connect, I monologued a little bit about the, the big John Scalzi deal, and I won't hit on all of my points. Again, I'll make people go back and listen to episode 301 if they want all of my opinion. But Christy, I'm sure, you know, you and I were trading some notes and social media commentary on Facebook back and forth a little bit about the about the Scalzi deal with Tor. Uh, I know you have some thoughts on it. What what did you think about the aftermath of the, the Scalzi announcement last week? It was last I, week. It was, yeah, I always have thoughts on things. Um, <laughs> The deal's pretty substantial, but it's not, you know, I, I think the first thing that came up is people were like, oh my God, this is, you know, it's 3.4 million. When you start breaking the numbers down, um, it's 10 years with uh, 13 books over 10 years. So if you split the money into, you know, into the 10 years, um, it, it roughly works out to, you know, $340,000 um, a year. Uh, and, and 200 something, I guess, per book. But um, it's so it, it's a hugely substantial deal. But it's not it's not like they're giving him I, I think there's this perception when you see these giant deals, that they're giving the author all the money up front. And it doesn't work like that. Because if they give you all the money up front, they have no guarantee that you're ever going to turn the books in again, um, or you're ever going to turn anything in again. So you know, they tend to the way advances work is you get a certain per, a certain amount per book, certain amount for signing the contract, which is usually quite substantial. Then you get another, um, you know, you get another, uh, you know, twenty thirty percent for um, uh, for turning the manuscripts in, and then you get, you know, once the book, once the edits are in, you get another chunk, and then when the book gets published, you get another chunk. So it's so it is spread out over over a long period of time. I think the most fascinating thing that came out of the deal had nothing to do with the with the dollar value um, of of the contract. And I thought the interesting thing was how people, a lot of people, commented that he would have made. And and I, I saw this everywhere on social media. Wow, it's a lot of money. He would have made so much more money in self publishing. <laughs> I, I I think it's fascinating, and I think people also miss the point in that it's not that they're giving him three point four million up front. It's that. This is a 10-year business deal, and that's a huge amount of security. And I kind of disagree. Like that, that's, that kind of job security in writing, I think that's the most fascinating thing that's come out of this because that's unheard of. To have 10 years guaranteed income for writing, I, I think it's you know phenomenal for Scalzi. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's a fascinating look at you know how industry stuff is, is somehow changing. But I don't think that you can say that he would have made more money self-publishing. And the reason I think that is that you know you're betting that 
the market is going to stay the same for the next 10 years. You're betting that Amazon, um, you know, and other ebook uh, retailers are going to keep their conditions the same for self-publishing authors for the next 10 years. You're betting that there's not going to be another, um, uh, you know, uh, tech- technology breakthrough that's going to change again how people consume fiction and consume books. So you're making a lot of assumptions. And I... I, I don't know. I, I don't think betting that the publish that the indie publishing world is going to stay the same over the next ten years is necessarily the wisest way to approach that. I, I think it's a great deal for Scalzi. I, I think it's a great deal for, you know, authors in general because it, it sort of gives you a window that Maybe there's a trend. Maybe um, publishers are going to look towards creating more stable relationships with authors versus the let's throw the book on, you know, let's throw the book up there, see if it, uh, see if the debut novel works. And then, you know, it's not the best seller. Bye. See you later. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's interesting, but I, I thought that was fascinating how, how the self, how the self publishing community reacted. I did as well, and those were some of the the sentiments. The distribution you you hit that component. I spoke more in broad brush terms around the flex being it it being a great deal for John for some of the same reasons around flexibility. It gives John a lot of freedom and it gives him a lot of flexibility. And I approached it more from the creative components of that. Although I did touch on distribution. Mm-hmm. because he liked the deal because it actually allows him to do some things creatively around distribution and allow allows him to work with Tor to try some different things. And if they don't work, then they, they can go back to maybe so, some more traditional models. But I think you focusing on the self-publishing distribution, I didn't speak to that as much. So that those are some interesting thoughts around, you know, he would have to navigate all those waters, although you know, he's, he's had some success at adapting to some different, I mean, considering he essentially published Old Man's War on his blog first, he, he's had some success in uh, adapting and paying attention to changes in the, the social media and the, the internet space. So, but this allows him more creative, I think some more creative control. You know, it's, it's nice having that kind of stability. Like, I mean, it's, um, he's, he's guaranteed that money for the next 10 years. So I, I think that's great. And it's a good relationship for Tor, too, because they've locked him down. Um, or to a degree, they, they've certainly got books coming in from him, so for, uh, from him for the next 10 years. So, yeah, no, I, I just thought it's interesting that, and, and you're right, like, he's, he's certainly able to navigate the changing um, I like. I mean, I, I'm not thinking. I'm. I'm not trying to um, insinuate at all that Scalzi couldn't navigate the changing publishing world. I'm. I'm sure he does. Would do it brilliantly. But um, it, it's just one of those things where I. I always hear a lot of self-publishing authors say, "Oh, well, you make so much more money with with um, you know uh, self-publishing on per title on Amazon." And it's like, well, that's because there's a seventy thirty cut. And you don't know if that's going to stay the same uh, five years from now or if it's going to be the same 10 years from now. You know, you could foreseeably see that that cut could drop or it could increase. We, we just don't know. The other thing, too, around the navigating the, the self-publishing waters is if he doesn't have to do that. And I think what, yes. people are, what, what people are missing in this, too, is that you have his works or there are other waters he needs to navigate that I didn't touch on and that you're making me think about now is, I mean, Old Man's War has been optioned. It's being made, yes. it's going to be made into a movie. So there are other waters in Hollywood, what have you, that he's now going to, to need to navigate. So this allows him 
some this frees up his available time and bandwidth to be able to look at making sure that creatively some of his works are, are probably addressed and handled in a manner that he would find find fitting. So and and meet the original scope of what he had done creatively. So that I mean there are other things he needs to do and I think this allows him to be able to do those things and and still produce work at uh, the regular clip he's been doing. So that's that's a very good point as well is that it's not just it's it, there's a lot and and this is something I'm learning too um you know as much 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 early earlier you know, from a very early point in my career, um, there's a ton of stuff that goes on in publishing besides just putting the book out there. It's it's pretty crazy just how many different types of rights are involved and how many different types of agents are involved. It's it's cool, but yeah, no. And once and once you get to the point where something's optioned, you've got a whole other bag of stuff you've got to think about. So no, I, I think that's a very very good point as well. Speaking of things that have drawn our attention, I know you and I have been, we had an interview last week that, that we had done that we're very excited to, to get out and share with the world. And then, <laughs> and, and I know you had, you had been talking about squeeing because I, I, we tempered you in the, in the, the conversation. We allowed a little bit of your squee out. In the I was so well behaved. <laughs> I was so good. I was so professional, and they were a little surprised too. They're like, "Yeah, we we figured you're gonna fit." No, I, I was being on my best behavior. So we, yeah, <laughs> we had uh, we had Patrick and Karen Weeks on the show. Uh, for those of you who play video games, the names will be very familiar. Um, these guys are are basically to uh, Karen's the lead editor at Bioware and Patrick is one of the lead writers. He's also an author in his own right. And um, the, the two of them are responsible for games like Mass Effect and um, Dragon Age. So uh, th- those two properties. So they're, they're involved in the writing and um, all of the great stories that you see in those video games. Uh, those are two of the people who've been involved from the beginning. So it's, it's kind of, it was kind of awesome having them on the show. It was very awesome having them on the show. And I will tell you as the relative non-video gamer, I act like I don't play at all. But I don't spend probably as much disposable time as you do based on what you were recounting to them on how much time you had spent on their games. Uh, 150 hours. It was a lot of, yeah. I was was calculating my billable hours (laughs) on how much time you had spent in video games. Um, But... I think what folks will find really interesting, I found interesting in that, that conversation, just as a preview of that conversation, was the skills, how both of them, how each of them found themselves in working in the, the video game industry. And they actually broke down through our conversation how they translated somewhat unrelated skills or they were translatable skills but in different industries than the video game industry and then were able to look at those skills and figure out how the skills they had acquired worked within the video game industry and have helped make them successful and i think for a lot of our listeners if they have any interest in working in the video game industry will be particularly interested in hearing that part of the conversation. And that was one of the more fascinating portions of the conversation for me, because I always like 
hearing those stories because somebody will say, oh, you, you, you have to know somebody, or, which there was a portion of that too with Patrick. You know, you have to be at the right place at the right time. But at the same time, once you're in that field, you have to figure out if you don't know what you're doing, you need to figure out how your skills translate and make them work for you, which they both did. And I thought that part of the conversation was, quite frankly, was pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's and and they were, you know, and they're. Uh, I, I've seen Patrick and Karen on panels before at um, at PAX, for for example, and they're they're always really forthcoming with um, how they got into the industry, um, you know, how things work, um, and and it's always great hearing them talk. Uh, and the other, yeah, no, and I, I thought what was interesting too is you sort of touch, you touched briefly on the idea of networking um, and, you know, that concept of you've got to know somebody in the industry. And I, I think the way that they framed how their networking worked, it wasn't like they were, hi, can I have a job? Hi, can I have a job? Hi, can I have a job? It was much more of a, they just happened to know people. They were getting to know people. They were making friends. They had people that they talked to, uh, you know, and it just, it wasn't like they were going into it looking for a job. It's just conversations evolve. And I, I think that's something people miss out on too, is that that's how networking works. Like you go to conventions and, and um, I think some people think, oh, I'm going to talk to an editor and they're going to buy my book or they're going to give me a job. And it doesn't work like that. It's you're building relationships with people and you're, you're getting to know people over years. And, uh, and yeah, no, I, I also just like hearing them talk. They're very entertaining. Yes, they were very They're entertaining. so entertaining. <laughs> yes, they were. And the little jabs at one another throughout the interview were very yeah. entertaining. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of entertaining, what are you reading right now? You're reading a book and you were ja- speaking of jabs, too. You're jabbing me on Facebook. I was. I was. <laughs> and and so, okay, so we talked about this the last time we chatted. We were talking about The Night Circus. And um, by Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Morgenstern. And um, it's, it's one of these, you know, books that everybody, I, it's been on my list for a while. And a lot of people that I'd spoken to said, oh, it's beautifully written. It's a fantastic book. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And I agree fullheartedly that it is an incredibly written, well-written book. Uh, the prose in this thing is gorgeous. It's funny, though. You, you were telling me you loved the book. And I'm liking it. I'm, I, I think I fibbed a bit. I'm not quite done. I'm, I've got like a chapter left to go. But um, for some reason, I'm not connecting with this story. And I thought this would be a good conversation to have because I think a lot of times people, when they're looking at reviews or they're talking about books, it's like, it's good or it's bad. And I think this is an interesting one for us to chat about because it's obviously a good book, but that doesn't mean, just because it's a good book doesn't mean it's going to resonate with everyone. And mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not it's the role I, I for whatever reason, I'm not buying the romance. Um, I love the circus. The circus is very cool. But I'm just not connecting with any of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Well, and I might connect with the characters because with one of them, and now you need to remember as we're having this conversation too, I was fortunate enough at Conquest at one of the dinners I was at, Karin Gastreich and I were, who's an author friend of mine, she actually went Saturday in as a honoring the book the night circus she dressed in black white and red for the day oh cool so that's how much she loved the she loved the book and we we had dinner conversation i read the book as soon as it came out and it's been out for a couple years now yeah so the only thing i recall is i know i share uh last name with one of the the protagonists i believe it's celia celia yes, yes. you do and that's not the only reason i would identify with that character 
But yeah, I, I think that's one of the common complaints uh, for people that don't appreciate the book is that they have a hard time identifying with some of the characters. I'm a big fan of just odd, quirky characters, and though that book in particular has them in spades. Mm-hmm. And so even if you, I didn't identify as tightly or as closely with the protagonist, and I think part of that too, when as I was going through that uh, and reading that book, I know a lot of that had to do with the time period and the competition that's being set up between the, the two characters too. Yes. That there's a sternness in the character. Yes. Um, in both of the the lead characters, but the the other supporting characters would would draw me in, particularly the twins. Yeah, they're and they're fascinating. And you know, one thing she does so well is she uses the environment and she uses color. You touched mm-hmm. on the color with the black and the white, and um, she she really does use color and visual cues very effectively. Um, and and that's it's and and here's the thing too. Just because I'm not loving the book doesn't mean that I would not recommend this. In fact, I do recommend people pick it up and try it uh, because just just for that reason, they might uh, connect with the character. And it is beautifully written. And she does some things that you don't see a lot of. Like, I don't see a lot of using the environment as part of the story that much. Uh, and she she does use the environment she's created very effectively, and it, it's interesting to read. So it's it's a it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, yeah. From a mood, from an overall mood standpoint, Becca read it. My wife read it after I had read it, and she wanted to put it down. I think for some of the the reasons that you had mentioned, she said, "I'm just not identifying with the the protagonist." And yes, yeah. and I said, I, I'm like, commit to page 100, please. Commit to that's my general, my golden yeah. rule is like, I commit to page 100. And if you haven't hooked me with something at that point, now if it, there's very few books I've probably picked up consciously or deliberately and then put down before page 100. There have been a few, yeah. but I, I said, commit to page 100. And at the end, she was like, okay. I, I bought in, and I think it's a lot of the, the scene setting, the mood, uh, the mystery, the romance. It'll be interesting once you actually finish. We, we yes. need to reconnect on this, on whether you think the romance works or not. I And, and here, here's another thing, too, and I, I think this is maybe one of the other reasons, and I, I actually thought about that, that once I get done that, you know, once I get done to that very last page, I might, there might be something that clicks. And the there's another author that I feel this way when I read his books, and I love his books, um, China Mieville. China does this type of plot where you don't have, you know how a lot of plots you've sort of got a little bit, you've got conflicts that pop up throughout the book. China Mieville, he builds up, he builds up, he builds up, and then in like the last third or quarter of the book, then you see the conflict start to, you know, you, you start seeing the conflict come up. You've got this kind of combination. And I find that frustrating. I still read his books, but about halfway through, I always want to throw it against the wall because I'm like, come on, get to the point, get to mm-hmm. the conflict. And she, I think, does this as well with the book. I feel like that the, co- I, I could be wrong, but I feel like there's a conflict that's still going to come and I'm starting to see bits and pieces of it, but that it's, it's going to be, there's going to be a grand finale and then I'm going to be like, okay, you know, but, um, but I, I find that 
frustrating and 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 again it's a personal preference but but no i'm not saying it's a bad thing i'm saying that it's it's a personal preference and that's that's a very very important point i think and we can disagree that's a taste yeah. that's a taste thing and I, I i would say part of that is the conceit is the competition you have this whole notion that they're supposed to be star-crossed lovers because of the competition that's been established early on in the book but it's subtly done I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's very subtly done. It's interesting you bring up China Mieville because uh, one of the books I just finished, so we, we talked about a few other things we're reading and then let people get into to our second part with Mary is uh, I just finished The Affinities by Robert Charles Wilson. And I, I had the same sense with that book as well was I was very engaged with the book because of the premise and this notion of it's really a book about sociological issues and creating communities of interest and getting psych profiles in order to create these uh, 22 affinities. And I was very fascinated by the concept of the book, but the, the actual conflict was very subtle. And it started to really form, start to form probably the last 75 pages to 50 pages of the book. And I felt like there was a weird... There was weird, I wouldn't call it a red herring, but it was uh, this weird red herring that was kind of thrown, I guess I will call it that, kind of thrown into it the last 50 pages that was almost as if I needed to pay attention to that red herring and then ultimately it didn't matter yeah. in the grand scheme of the conflict. It was it was like some sort of weird coincidental uh, device and that bo it bothered me tremendously. I loved that book for the first 250 pages, and I understood what he was trying to accomplish mm -hmm. with the end of the book. But I had the same the the same issue where, you know, the ending just it ended up probably killing the book for me in a lot of huh. ways. So the other so the other stuff I'm reading right now, I, I've been going through a lot. I read um I actually did an audiobook. Uh, I did, I've actually done an audiobook series and. Um, I, I'll mention it because I uh, it uh, I highly recommend if you're going to read the series this particular series it's Larry Correa's uh, Grimnoir Chronicles about nineteen sort of it's it's kind of like people who use magic in the nineteen thirties it's very much a nineteen thirties nineteen forties kind of noir type type uh, series the actor who does the audiobooks Bronson Pincot um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right I'm probably not I just so you all know I butcher just about everybody's name who comes on the show. Um, <laughs> As, as Brent Brent will tell everybody, it's it's more of an issue of whose name am I going to butcher this week, not if I'm going to butcher a name. But anyway, he's a brilliant voice actor, and I rarely does rarely do I come across audiobooks where the voice actor has such an impact on my enjoyment and listening of the books. Uh, and in this case, I I recommend people pick up the the first book just to hear this voice actor do the stories he really brings them to life with the accents and just the the voices he puts behind the characters it it really is brilliant my favorite character is this uh uh this this one uh sort of magic using girl named uh, named Faye and she's from uh uh Oklahoma and her accent and the voice patterns and the voice he uses for her makes her absolutely you know uh, just just I wait for the book to get to her again so I can listen to this girl talk. Um, so it's, it's, so it's, it's fascinating for that reason. I'm really enjoying it, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun series. It's action adventure, but it's the voice actor who's really bringing this, this series to life for me. Oh, good. Really resonate. Yeah. The voice really resonates because the voice actor is able to carry it up. Yes. 
character. That, that's there we go. Yes, is able to pull it off. Yeah, interesting. Well, one of the things I'm I'm getting into two books, and this may be a little hint on folks that will likely have on the show in the next couple months. Uh, but one of those now that I finished the affinities, but which before I leave Robert Charles Wilson, I will tell you there are other works of his that I've absolutely adored. And I, again, I like the affinities up until the last probably 50 pages. And I was just, I'm still struggling with the ending a little bit. So if somebody else reads that and wants to school me on, on how I'm wrong, please do, because it's, it's worth the read. But again, it, it's one of those things where an ending for, for some people can really kind of trump everything else, unfortunately. But a hint of two other books I'm looking forward to, to getting into, and one of them, I believe, is on your to-be-read pile, as well as Thrones and Bones, Nightborn by Lou Anders. Yep. So we're going to get into the middle grade and YA book club uh, series, and this may be one where I may enlist my our friend Riley to help us with this as well. She she'll need to read the the debut Frostborn before she gets into Nightborn, but cracked it open. And then the other one I'm I'm reading is uh, Peter Rulian's Trial of Intentions, which was just released last week. A um, little behind on on it, and it's a standalone novel in the same world as his debut, The Unremembered. And uh, The Unremembered's been on my, I'm glad this is a standalone, because The Unremembered's been on my to-be-read pile for forever, collecting dust, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm going to read this one first, and then I'll go back and read the, the debut. So those are things I'm looking forward to, to getting into uh, this nice. week. Yeah, what's, what's on your to-be-read pile? I've got so I'm still working my way through Patrick Rothfuss's the uh, the name of the wind and uh, I've got the new Ed Greenwood book uh, the new Elminster book uh, on my pile as well so people who know Forgotten Realm stuff that's that's where that book's from um, and I cannot wait to read that because I used to devour the Elminster books um, and I've also got uh, the new Charlene Harris that I'm uh, have been cracking open and I've started to read so um i've actually got the first book and the second book so i will be i will be giving my opinions on those ones shortly as well um and i'm sure there's a oh yes and the um three body problem i finished uh and i did a book club over on sci-fan and that was a lot of fun uh so people can uh if they we'll put a link up but uh they can check out what i had to say about that book it's good read it um and also the goblin emperor Yes. I've got in my pile. You're doing the Hugo. Hug I'm doing the Hugos, yes. Hug Hugo reading yep. we have going on. Yeah, Three Body Problems, my audiobook of the month. At least, well, I may have several of those this month, but that's the one I'm currently listening to is the Three Body Problem. I'll be really curious to trade notes with you when you finish just right. to see how you liked the audiobook because I did the physical book. All right, we can, do, so. we can do that. I knew I wouldn't be able to get in all the physical review copies that are coming through the submission pa Hugo submission packet. Yeah. So I've been looking at some of the works and saying, okay, I have some free audible credits. Uh, let's place that and I can multitask. And that's generally how I do it. I have, every month I generally have at least one audiobook going, one physical book going, and then one digital book going. And yeah. so where, wherever I am, I'm consuming in between day job and whatever else we're, whatever else we're doing. So I'm able to get in at least three books a month. Yeah, I, and I find I'm doing the same thing now, too, where it's like I'll, I'll have audiobooks, library books, and then my um, 
often the Kindles or the yeah the eBooks that we get as um, uh, occasionally from publishers when they're nice enough to send us stuff, which is is quite frequently. Anything else that we can think of before we sign off and let people get into our conversation with Mary? We got um, the the only other thing is keep your ears out for the Karen and Patrick Weeks um, episode coming up because they have uh, between forty seven North and um, and Weeks. We have some awesome, awesome giveaways. So we have three sets of the Prophecy Con series. So um, uh, Prophecy Con and the Palace Job. So and also uh, Masked Empire that they're tossing in, um, which is a Dragon Age standalone novel. So there are going to be three sets of those three books going out. So we'll do some giveaway stuff. Yeah, you and I'll need to figure out how logistically we want to give those away. Yeah. So we will we will sort that out, folks, and then when their shows go live, we will make you aware of the details around the giveaway. Until next time, everybody take care. See you guys later. If I may provide another term that I think has worked well with some of the dialogue you've created is also objective. So you you've tried to internalize obviously even through the conversation we we've had today is you've mm-hmm. internalized some of the needs the in the feelings of what individuals that might identify with sad puppies might be going through to think about the position and maybe react in the way that they have and I don't want I don't want to put words in your mouth but as an extension of that one one group we've maybe seen not be as objective potentially potentially is is the media and how would you characterize mm-hmm. how effective they've been in kind of covering the co- the controversy so it's an interesting thing boy i could talk about this for a long time <laughs> um so one of the, the the things that i think the media is reacting to is something that i had just alluded to which is that we see this pushback uh and this kind of pushback throughout history and so I think one of the things that the media is reacting to is that the sad puppies and their rhetoric are very predictable because they are repeating patterns that we have already seen. And so I think that's one reason that it's being covered the way it's being covered. Uh, and also because they have actively involved Gamergate, uh, which so it's, it's building on a story that was already already in existence. It's, it's a continuation to us. It, it feels like they've just come in and started talking about science fiction and fantasy, but that's not actually what they're talking about. They are actually talking about social justice uh, and the, the pushback against it, and they are using science fiction and fantasy as, as, and, and our community as the current lens to have that conversation. Um, so I, I actually feel like there have been times when I've, I've read it and they're like, eh, initially when I was first reading the coverage, I felt like they were conflating um, the sad puppies and the rabbit puppies and that 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 was inappropriate. As it's gotten deeper into the conversation and the sad puppies are, you know, they're taking credit for the actions of the rabbit puppies. They're celebrating the actions of it. Like, look how successful we were with the ballot and uh, our alter ego, the rabbit puppies, and and things like that, it's, you know, I I feel like, all right, you know, media, you were correct to not separate them, because apparently it is, there's a lot more links than... uh, Maybe there was some collusion there after all. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, someone's going to say, oh, you need to show a link to this, but, you know, this is a radio interview and, and I'm not going to pause to go pull it up. But Larry Correa <laughs> talks about uh, how he and the sad puppies sat down and talked over every single thing that was on the ballot and that he talked it over with the um, Evil League of Evil, which is, you know, a Dr. Horrible illusion. But uh, one of the members of his Evil League of Evil is Vox Day. So it's kind of hard to look at it and go, feel like, well, if you're telling us that you've talked it over with him, why don't you... Okay, I'm, I'm just... Hmm. I, 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 have some, I have some questions about how you are not related to the rabid puppies, if in fact one of your okay, uh, well, one uh, of your I'm board, me- one of your board members, is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, and and you know, good on Larry for declining the nomination, uh, but if if he and his fellows talked it all over, and who is going to be on the ballot? Why did he put his his novel on the ballot in the first place? Especially if his stated aim was to, you know, help make uh, other other writers people aware of why not give the slot on that ballot to someone else so you know there there's stuff like that that i just i have questions about and i feel like the the media is very sympathetic towards us <laughs> but I, I i do feel like that's because of the larger historical context and that's a good frame of reference to put yeah. i think put that in and i'm not heard it characterized necessarily in that way so that gives us gives us certainly some things to think about as well we can't have you on on a slightly more positive and um different note uh we couldn't have mm-hmm. you on the show and talk only hugo awards um your <laughs> <Thank> last you. <laughs> installment <laughs> your last installment in the glamorous histories of noble family um has mm-hmm. just hit shelves what's awaiting jane and vincent in the last book or what can you tell us that isn't laden with spoilers um yeah i'm, I'm getting really good about talking about this book without spoilers uh, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, in this book, I send Jane and Vincent to Antigua, and I chose Antigua because I decided for the last book to to kind of go back to the roots of what I had been doing with the series, which is the, it's a series about family, you know. Uh, and it, initially, it was Jane and her family, small scale family drama, and then it was the relationship between Jane and Vincent as viewed through various um, various crises. Uh, so this one, Vincent's family has an estate in Antigua, and so this winds up putting him in contact with some family members that he, you know, he's estranged from them. So it's still dealing with family issues. But the the other thing that I had been doing is these started as Jane Austen with magic, and in Mansfield Park, Sir Thomas. Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. So Thomas goes to his estates in Antigua because there are problems there. To a modern reader, it looks very much like she glosses over uh, Jane Austen. Jane Austen doesn't deal with slavery at all. um, And that she glosses over the slavery issues in Mansfield Park. Mm -hmm. Uh, To one of her contemporaries, she's actually being quite blatant in a number of different ways. The the Lord High Justice in in England uh, who had... Oh, shoot... That the Somerset ruling, uh, but basically the ruling that that said that uh, any slave who set foot on English soil uh, was no longer property. 
um, hmm. that, that their laws of England applied equally to anyone who came came to to England itself. Um, his his surname was Mansfield, Lord Mansfield. So Mansfield Park, you know, this is this is something that was contemporary with with Austin. That's that's not a coincidence. She was an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. She would have been completely aware. In Emma, um, she talks about uh, Mrs. Elston's father. And there's a line, which I'm paraphrasing, um, but very cl- it's uh, something like, Mrs. Elston's father was a merchant, if one may call him that, in Bristol. And to a modern reader, it's like, oh, you know, she's looking down on him because he sells things. Hmm. And, but that's not what's going on. Bristol and everybody who is reading this within, in England at the time would have known Bristol was the slave market. Mm-hmm. So he was a merchant, if one can call him that. In Bristol, takes on a completely different meaning. It really does. That. Yeah, yeah. So what I wanted to do was to go back to the ideas, go back to to Austin, go back to the the family drama, and deal with some of the topics that she was dealing with, but deal with it in ways that were accessible to my modern readers. You know, also in Mansfield Parks, there one of the characters isn't eating sugar, and it's not a diet. Mm-hmm. It was a boycott on sugar by abolitionists because huh. it was raised in the you know it was being raised by slaves in the West Indies. So it, it, it's all of this stuff, all of this context that we just completely lack. So I wanted to I wanted to do that. So it's um, I have joked that I have created a Regency Grimdark. <laughs> 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 you know, you got the pretty dresses. You got the ball, you got a slave plantation, um, and I'm not pulling any punches. There are parts of the book that are difficult to read, but I also, there, you know, there are also things like I've, I've got my Doctor Who cameos, I have a Princess Bride joke in there, um, so... <laughs> It's not all bleak all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I after after hearing your description and just between the Jane Austen, um the Jane Austen sort of a illusion and references and and um you know uh, sort of that that grimdark, I I'm I'm really looking forward to reading this one. So this is gonna be the last, last one. How hard is it to say goodbye to this series? It is really hard. I was surprised. I actually went into a little bit of mourning for them. I've been writing these books for five years, and I've really only been writing professionally for about 10. Well, actually, depending on how you count it, less than that even, but but still, it's, you know, at least half of my career, my, my fiction career has been consumed by these books. Mm-hmm. And uh, and actually, longer than that, because I, I wrote the, the first book well before I sold it. So yeah, it was really difficult to say goodbye to them. But I, I also, you know, as a reader, I fatigue after about five books. Mm-hmm. And and I like things that wrap up neatly and I, I didn't want to I didn't want to have a series that where I just kept churning out the books and it kind of trailed off and I started regurgitating ideas. Um and, and also honestly, at a certain point my characters are just walk. It would just be walking bundles of PTSD. I mean, if there was a book six, <laughs> realistically, it would be Jane and Vincent cowered in the closet, and that would be the entirety of the novel. Yeah, particularly with this grimdark angle you're taking oh, with, yeah. with the fifth book. Yes, they would be. If if it's Jane Austen meets uh, Django Unchained, then yes, I imagine that the sixth book is they, they would be. Yeah. Yeah, in a room. It, it's actually it's it's kind of like Jane Austen meets Joe Abercrombie. I mean, <laughs> <Okay>. it's <laughs> <laughs> there's um uh, 
Joe Scalzi's, uh, or, um, John Scalzi's book, um, uh, red shirts has, has a, fa- it, it's interesting you bring up the, the PDSD cause it's, uh, there are some very funny references to the Star Trek, um, serialization, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. and PTSD in Riker, essentially that he should be a walking bag of just of nerves right now. So no, that's uh, right. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's very true. Mary, you've had a you've had an incredibly mixed month. I mean, we we've been talking about the Hugo and the the Downer and the circus that's been the Hugo Awards, and you've had to say goodbye to some beloved characters. But we, you know, we in your intro we were talking about your experience as a as a puppeteer, and you've had were able to say hello to an an opportunity uh, that's coming up. And folks familiar with you may know a bit about your puppetry, but they may yeah. not know about your, your latest gig. So, <laughs> and you're, you, Oh, you're squeeing. Keep squeeing. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so my latest gig, uh, was, uh, um, got to, to work for two days on Sesame street. Um, which, is the first time that I've done that. Now, to someone who is not a puppeteer, they, they might look at my biography and go, but you worked on Elmo and Grouchland, which is a Sesame Street film. And you, you know, you, you worked on, you were on Sesame Street. It's not the same thing. Like to a puppeteer, Sesame Street and the film are, it's two totally different environments. And even though same, same actors and all of that. Um, so this was fantastic. This is something that I have wanted to do kind of always. And, you know, my first day is, it's, you know, it's such a glamorous first day. I was supposed to right hand for Oscar the Grouch. And right handing, it's called that because literally you are the puppet's right hand. Uh, <laughs> the main puppeteer works the head and the left hand on a, a puppet with live hands, uh, and then another puppeteer works the right. And uh, he was he was in a non traditional trash can. Uh, it was a new one, and there was only room in it for one puppeteer, so I couldn't. And there was not space for me to get in to do the right hand. So, alas. But that was the only thing I was scheduled to do that day. So, they were like, we, we need to give Mary something else to do. It's her first day on Sesame Street. <laughs> so, it was a slice of flying pizza. That's right. <laughs> Incredibly glamorous. Piece of pizza on a stick, mind you. Nice rod. Mm-hmm. I got to hit Grover in the face with it and then carefully, artfully slide down Grover's face and then right at the exact correct opportune moment allow gravity to take the pizza and drop out of frame um <laughs> uh, yeah so for day one um i was a slice of flying pizza i also got to hit alan who's one of the human actors uh in the face with a slice of pizza as well uh which was slightly more nerve-wracking because i actually could put his eye out oh. um you can't really do that to grover and then the second day uh i was live handing or right handing for peter lynn who's uh, one of my old puppetry friends, uh, one of my very first puppetry friends. And we were both performing a grouch character. Uh, Alan Cumming was on the show, so we were getting to to play with him. It was a musical number, and um, mostly the, the hands were not really in view. At one point, I wound up saying to Peter... Yeah, I pulled out early because it was all head, which is the kind of thing you get to say in puppetry. <laughs> I pulled out early because it was all head. <laughs> that sounds um, like Josh Whedon dialogue from the latest Avengers. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> 
so uh, so then they then they they stuck me on Oscar. Uh, so I got to be Oscar's right hand for pretty much the rest of the day. Uh, it was great fun. It was just it's one of my favorite kinds of puppetry to do. I love right handing because when you are in tune with the lead puppeteer, it's I think the closest you can come to a human to experiencing telepathy. You know, when it's all working correctly, you're both thinking with the same mind and that's the mind of the character. Uh, and it's it's just I, I love it so much. It's not particularly comfortable, but it's great. Uh, so, so that was day one and two on Sesame Street, and um, and hopefully, I mean, they, it sounds like they're going to call me back, but I don't know when, um, mm-hmm. because I'm as we are recording this, I'm leaving tomorrow for twenty days to do book tour. Yeah, Ooh, to do yay. a book tour, yay! <laughs> and, and we're going to make sure to to. I just got an email from Tor, Ooh. and uh, yes, with dates for your tour and. Future guest Tina Connolly, who's going to be on tour as well. Oh, lovely! And so I'm going to go ahead, and in the show notes, I will put the dates of of your guys's tour, and actually, we'll we'll tweet those out today too. So so folks, oh, fantastic! Get a ch- Thank you. Yeah, folks, get a chance if they know when you're on the road. So that's awesome about the the Sesame Street the Sesame yeah. Street gig. Congratulations! Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. You. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Do you know when it's those episodes? Yeah, do you know when those episodes are going to air? I don't. Okay. Um, yeah, I really have no idea. Okay, so we just need to be believe on the, me. Watch out for flying but, pizza. Yeah, yeah but well, basi- basically, Alan. believe me, when I start po- tweeting in all capital letters, um, <laughs> that's a good sign <laughs> that people should maybe watch Sesame Street that day. <laughs> but yeah. Unintelligible tweets from Mary are what we'll be watching out for in the coming weeks and yep. months. Okay. As well as yes. more puppetry one-liners, which I love. Um, yes, those are some <laughs> of my favorite things. <laughs> well, Mary, we started this conversation, well, we started this conversation with uh, Christy and I in envy of your Caribbean trip. But, uh-huh. <laughs> yes, you know, the core of this conversation and its final question, you've been more than gracious with your time was the goal of your Hugo exploration was really to get people involved in the voting process. And if I heard you correctly through the course of the discussion, that membership drive is closed. You've wrapped that up, correct? Right. We gave, that is correct. We gave a hundred away, but people can still join and vote uh, on their own. Um, And there are some other people who are giving them away. And and also let me do a shout out to um, Con or Bust, uh, which I think is conorbus.org. I think that's right. I've seen them as well. Uh, they actually pay, do scholarships for uh, fans of color to attend in person, uh, Worldcon and other other conventions. So I, I highly recommend that people check them out. And if you're looking for some place to donate funds, that, that's a great group organization. And it, it, you know, we're, we're stronger as a community when there's more of us. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we'll make sure to include uh, a link to that in our show notes as well. Anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that we we may have missed? We really appreciate yeah. you taking the time. Um, no, I just, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. There, there is one question that you had mentioned in your, uh, when we were getting ready to uh, to do this. So let me just go ahead and say that you take the R train to get to Sesame Street. The R train. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I had skipped over that on the the how did you get to Sesame Street? So <laughs> you were you were. But I know. Yeah, I I wanted to know. I really wanted to know. So really, it's the R train. It's the R, Boy, it's the R train. That is awesome. Well, Mary, yeah. you've been that I I can hold that near and dear to my heart now that I know exactly how to get <laughs> I know exactly how to get that. It's that that shows a lost ship. My kids are too old now really to to watch it, although what I think they've been doing a fabulous job of are the media crossovers with, yes. with some of the pop culture stuff that's a lot of fun. Oh my goodness. And it's, yeah. And, and it's bringing my kids back to the show, which has been so good. Yeah, it's been it's been fabulous. They're a little older. I mean, my son's in middle school now, but I had oh, yeah. to I had to know. So I'm glad you didn't forget. It's the R train. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. Well, Mary, it, it's you've been more than gracious with your time. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, happy to, have, to talk to you. Yeah, a real pleasure. It's been fantastic having you. Yeah. Great. And, and we'll look forward to catching up with you in real life soon, okay? That sounds great. Thank you so much. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>